Dear Father, we thank you uh, that we can read episodes like this in Scripture and still take comfort uh, in your righteousness and in your justice. And we can see the futility of uh, trying to solve our own problems by means of the flesh. We, uh, we recognize that we must depend on you for all things. And as we trace the story of Abraham learning to depend on you more and more and learning to depend on his flesh uh, far less, uh, we recognize here uh, what it looks like when people just simply uh, solve their own problems, when you are not a solution in their lives, when they don't trust you, but instead they fear um, and they've separated themselves from you instead of from the world. So, Lord, we pray that uh, as uh, sobering and as somber as this uh, message is this morning, uh, we pray that it would encourage us uh, for the different kind of hope that we have, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So we do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. Actually, uh, as, as simple as the song was that we sung before we started, uh, it's an important song. And I don't think we realize often we pay more attention to the uh, Jesus loves me part, but we often ignore the evidence that the song gives us for that. It's because the Bible tells me so. So often we're looking for an experience. We want to feel God's love, and so we look for anything that just feels good. But we know that God loves us because of what he's done, and we know what he has done because God's word tells us so. And so we recognize not only in that song, but in our passage this morning, the importance of trusting God and trusting his word and knowing his love for us. Remember, when Lot was being brought out of Sodom, he said, I know your loving kindness for me because you have brought me out and spared my life. But I can't go to the mountains. He did not trust what he had evidence to trust. He did not trust that God's loving kindness towards him would continue. He did not trust God when he said that he would preserve him outside of there. And we see that kind of lack of trust transferred to Lot's daughters as well. So our main idea this morning in, uh, is that separating oneself from God's word and ways rather than from the world's word and ways results in fear and self-effort. When God is not the center and foundation of one's hope, the flesh will try to solve its own problems. Lot's daughters had not been res uh, trained in truth or the fear of the Lord, and the result was fleshly scheming, resolving their shame with greater acts of evil. We see this all throughout Lot's episodes, where he appears to be trying to do something good. He's trying to protect these angels. He's trying to protect them from abuse, and he's trying to be a good steward to them. But his means of protecting them is to do a far greater evil, which is to offer up his daughters. This is worldly wisdom. This is the wisdom of the flesh to solve its own problems. It cannot do good, and therefore it has to fight evil with evil. And this is the problem that we encounter with these young women this morning. The, this uh, little addendum to Genesis 19 actually serves as an epilogue. Throughout Genesis so far, whenever we've encountered a character, when we're about to see that character pass off from, uh, from being the main focus, we get an epilogue telling us what happened to them, what happened to their genealogy, what happened to their line. Uh, Lot's line is going to continue. We will see that uh, his descendants come up through scripture later, 
But this is the last time where we see Lot as an active character. This is the end of Lot's story, and it's, uh, it's quite depressing, not just because of the, uh, the uncomfortable episode that occurs, but because the situation we find him in here. Genesis 19.30 says, Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. This gives us the place that he is living, uh, but it should also strike us as odd that now he is moving away from Zoar and going to the mountains where he had told God he wouldn't be able to flee and he wouldn't be safe. Now he is going to those same mountains. Well, we remember back just a few verses in verses 24 and 25 that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So Lot is here dwelling still in that valley, in the fifth city, the smallest of the five that was spared. Remember in this valley of Sidim, which becomes the Salt Sea, uh, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. I mean, we could think of these like the tri-cities in our own state. Uh, these are pretty close to one another, and if half of them or four-fifths of them were destroyed, it would be fairly devastating on the remaining one as well. Lot has destruction all around him. Not only that, but he knows that Zoar got off the hook by just the skin of its teeth, by just the fact that Lot had prayed for uh, refuge in that city. Otherwise, it would have been wiped off the face of the earth too. And so we know that Zoar, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, was deserving of being destroyed. And instead of choosing to cast his, his uh, care to the Lord and let the Lord care for him in the mountains, he chooses the world instead. He chooses instead to find safety in a city deserving of destruction. And so when he goes around and he is looking in that city, he sees the same things that caused the destruction of Sodom. And we know that Lot in his character already does not trust God. And so when God said, you'll be safe there, I can't do anything until you go there, Lot can't trust that, not because God has shown himself untrustworthy, but because Lot has shown himself to be beyond reason when it comes to trusting the Lord. He simply cannot do it because he trusts the world too much. In Deuteronomy 29, 23, hundreds of years later, over 400 years later, when the children of Israel are returning to the land, what do we see? Speaking of the land and the future prophecy that Israel itself would come under similar judgment, but not a total destruction. Uh, we see all its land is brimstone and salt and a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. See, even though Lot leaves Zoar, God does not destroy Zoar because he said he would spare it. Even hundreds of years later, we see that when Lot fled from this city, God didn't wipe it off the face of the earth because he was gone from it now. God said he would spare it, and he did so. Zoar doesn't enter into the story much anymore. It probably dies off itself or mixes in with the rest of the Canaanites who uh, filled up the evil of or the, uh, the cup of judgment for uh, the Amorites. Uh, but here we see that God was faithful to his word and he did not destroy Zoar, but yet Lot is fleeing from Zoar where God said he would be safe. 
Remember, in verses 21 through 23, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. This was a safe place for him to stay. God transferred his promise of care and safety from the mountains to Zoar. And so, when Lot leaves Zoar now, he is leaving the protective promise of God. He is going somewhere where God did not tell him to go now. This had been a command, and he pleaded with God to change his mind, and God did. But now, Lot is going there anyways, only now he is going there apart from God's word, rather than in obedience to God's word. The original command to him had been not to stay anywhere in the valley. The result of staying in the valley would be that he would be swept away. Instead, he should escape to those mountains. But he said, I cannot escape to the mountains. Naturally, the result of this lack of faith, apart from reason, apart from evidence, results in fear. Lot has separated himself from God mentally. And so he's separating himself physically as well and attaching himself to the world. And when he is separate from God but has a knowledge of God, the only result would be fear. He's fearing the surrounding world around him and he fears the consequences that he himself might endure. Remember, the very first fear, or the very first result of sin, was fear in the presence of God. He said, that is, Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Sin produces fear. Fear itself is sinful, because it is a failure to trust in God. Genesis 18.15, remember, Sarah denied it, denied having laughed, saying, I did not laugh because she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. What is it with all of this fear? 1 John 4 is a chapter on maturity. Maturity in the spiritual life or growing in knowledge of who God is and of what he has done. A mature faith has no fear. There is no fear in love. But perfect love or matured love or filled up love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. This doesn't mean that God doesn't love Lot. This doesn't mean that when we fear God doesn't love us. This means that we do not understand his love. Our knowledge of his love is immature. And when we don't understand his love, we don't understand the love that he has put in us, and we are not able to demonstrate that love. If we don't depend on the spirit, but instead depend on the flesh, the result is fear instead of love. This is a tale as old as time, going back all the way to the garden, but we remember one possible reason for the building of the Tower of Babel. We do have some 
specific reasons we'll look at later that the Tower of Babel was written or uh, built, and they all do go back to this idea of fear, fear uh, that they would not have a name for themselves, but that they would be scattered abroad across the earth. But here Josephus talking about Nimrod and his evil and wicked plans interprets why the Tower of Babel had been built. Josephus in uh, Book 1, Chapter 4 says he also gradually changed the government into tyranny, that's Nimrod, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. Nimrod, this monarchical government, chose to or decided that he must separate man from trusting God into trusting him. Otherwise, they would fear God rather than fearing him. They must make, he must make them totally dependent on him. So he also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that, he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself of God for destroying their forefathers. We can only speculate why Lot is leaving, but my speculation is that he fears God will destroy Zoar. And so he goes to where God had originally said he would spare. He is living in a wicked and awful place that does not have the fear of the Lord in it. And so he flees. But even that is an act of distrust. We also recognize here something about Lot's estate. You see, he has separated himself from the God, from God and attached himself to the world, but where has this left him? When he fled to the mountains away from Zoar, he stayed in a cave with his two daughters. Now here's just a couple of pictures of what this cave might have looked like. This is uh, one possible site. It's on the uh, uh, kind of in the middle of the Dead Sea region, and the, uh, the Jordanians have built up in front of it. In fact, they call Lot a prophet. Uh, they, they believe he was one of the good guys. He was a believer, but a prophet he was not. But because he knew about the destruction of Sodom beforehand, they call him a prophet. And so they have idolized this cave where Lot went. Uh, the whole region is filled with cave systems all on both sides of the Dead Sea, just by nature of the kind of rock that is there. So we can't know exactly which one he was in or whether it still is there today. Uh, but this should give you a bit of an idea of the barren terrain that he has moved to. Terrain that has just seen destruction in its midst. Here's from a little further back, looking now at, this, at the Dead Sea. In fact, this is right near a little tell called Machaerus. Uh, this was one of Herod's temples. It's gone now. It was on top of this hill. This is where John the Baptist was beheaded. But these are the mountains, the hillside in which Lot chose to bring himself. This is far removed from the wonderful gardens that had filled the valley before. He has moved himself toward wealth and riches and comfort and finds himself cast away on the hillside. Genesis 11.31, remember Lot's origins. Terah took Abraham his son, Abram his son, and Lot 
the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. Lot was part of a family, part of a family that crossed the entire known world at that time, coming from the richest location, Ur of the Chaldeans, right near Babel and in the Mesopotamian, went up to Haran, which was also well known uh, for its rich and lavish lifestyle, and moved into Canaan. But he comes from a royal line. Terah was elevated in the names of his children, Abram and Sarai. Remember, she is a princess, and Abram, his name refers to his great father. Uh, Lot is from a great pedigree. Lot is stationed in life to inherit riches. In fact, we see him positioned to inherit through Abraham, but God says, no, you'll have a different inheritance to Abraham. Moving forward into Genesis 13, we recognize that in following along with Abraham, even though Abraham was not supposed to take him with him, Lot is accumulating wealth. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Even at that time, Lot would be able to see the wickedness of Sodom and recognize that this is not a good place to be living. But with all of the worldly wealth that he had and seeking safety for that worldly wealth, seeking good pastures, for his herds rather than what Abraham did and trust in the Lord and choose the hill country where it, uh, it is dependent on God to bring the rain rather than the river to flow naturally from the mountains. God preserves Abram but destroys the security that Lot had in the valley because of the wickedness he compromised. And so Lot brought all of his wealth down there and ceased to be a traveler after moving his tents close enough, we find him now living inside the city. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now sitting in the gate of a city, remember, is not something that a vagrant does, but something that an elder in the city would do. This is a place of commerce, a place where judges sit, a place where the gatekeeper to the city, the one who decides who comes in and who does not, gets to sit. This is an elevated position, and he perhaps received this elevated uh, position because of Abraham's, uh, because of his relationship to Abraham. Remember, just a few chapters earlier, Abraham and his gang of men rescued all of these cities when their wealth and their people and their supply of food was taken by the. Uh, by the confederate kings from the east and dragged up towards Dan. Abraham went and rescued them. 
naturally you would want to have this kind of a man in your midst, and if they can't have Abraham, they might as well have Lot. We'll see a similar thing in the next chapter. But Lot is here elevated in the city. Not only that, but he possesses a house in the city, a permanent dwelling place. This is where he has put down his roots and decided that he would stay. Not only that, but he is marrying into this city. He has betrothed his daughters to have husbands from the city. But when God intervenes to pull him out, where does God say that he will bring him? To the mountains, where he will have nothing but God. He'll have his life. He'll have his daughters if they'll come with him. He would have had his wife if she would have depended and trusted on God instead of her own, uh, of doing things her own way. And so he would have all of his worldly wealth stripped away still, but he would still have everything because he would have God. But he flees to this little town instead, grasping onto just a pinch of what he might have. Just a little bit of the world if he can't have the whole thing. And he finds himself on the hillside in a cave anyways. Only this he did apart from God. This man went from riches to rags. He had everything the world could offer. And when he took just one stand in that city, they were ready to cast him out. And it wasn't even a very strong stand. God rescued him brought him out, and he still could not trust God. He still would not put his faith in God to protect him and save him, despite everything that God had done. And now he has nothing. Well, this is a recipe for depression. Separated from God, that's the biggest thing, but also removed from the world. Abraham separated himself from the world as well, but he attached himself to God. This is a recipe for health. This is a recipe for a sane mind and for righteousness. Lot, on the other hand, set him up, himself up for disaster. Not only that, but he trained his daughters in the same way, or rather failed to train them in righteousness because he himself did not understand righteousness. He himself did not understand the nature of God the loving kindness of God, the grace of God, the desire of God that he would be attached to him instead of the world. And so his daughters act as we might expect these daughters to have grown up under Lot's care. The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Now this statement about his being old is interesting. We know that Abraham is old. Abraham is the uncle here, but it was his older brother's son, so we don't know how close in age they might, might be. Possibly, they're quite close in age. Abraham, miraculously, is able to have children in his old age, Sarah as well, and even after, oops, even after all of this time, uh, after Sarah's death, at 137, or 27, which would make Abraham 137, almost 40 years later, 
Abraham is still having more children. And so we recognize that age surely is an issue here, but I don't think the age specifically has to do with Lot being able to bear children, but rather his station in life. It takes a lifetime to build clout in a society. It builds a lifetime to build reputation in the world. It takes a long time as well to build wealth. Lot has lost everything that he has in the world. But it is still his job and his responsibility to find husbands for his daughters. He had done so in Sodom. They had uh, betrothed uh, fiancés, but they died in the destruction of Sodom. Not only that, but we see Sodom undermining that betrothal anyways, offering these daughters to anyone in the city, um, despite the fact that they were betrothed to these men. So the sanctity of marriage is under attack here, but yet they're still clinging to this responsibility that the father has. Now there's an interesting parallel in Genesis between the story of Lot and his daughters and the story of Judah and his sons. If we move forward for a minute to Genesis 38, we see this also somewhat uncomfortable episode. It says, Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar married Judah's oldest son, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. God brought Judah, or Judah's firstborn, Ur, uh, out of the world, but Judah had a responsibility to Tamar to provide a kinsman redeemer, or at least to give her a kinsman redeemer if one exists, and one does exist. Judah said to Onan, go to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is before the law. The law is going to enshrine this in Israel's code of conduct. But we see even before that, even closer to the time of Lot and his daughters, that it is customary for the younger brothers to redeem an older brother who dies before procuring children. And so if this older brother dies, as he has here, the next brother in line is responsible to take on this wife and produce a child so that his brother's bloodline will live on. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He knew that in redeeming his brother, this child would belong to his brother and not to himself. And so when he went to his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. This was an evil act that went against, uh, went against what was right not only culturally, but in God's eyes as well. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Now notice in both of these cases, it is Judah's sons that are acting wickedly, and God is dealing with them because of their own wickedness. But how does Judah interpret this? Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now it was not Tamar's fault that her two husbands, the children of Judah, acted so wickedly in the sight of the Lord, and that they were destroyed. 
just how God had destroyed these cities. But Judah decides it's Tamar's fault. Go home to your dad and wait until Shelah grows up and he's old enough to marry. So he gives lip service to this responsibility that he says, or that he has, saying that she will have Shelah. But after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, Judah died. Judah's wife has died. There are no more children coming from him. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep herders at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. She sees that not only what she had been promised, but what was Judah's responsibility to provide had been shirked on. He was not faithful to his word. He was not faithful to his responsibility to Tamar. And so Tamar acted. Lot went out and spoke to his... Oops. Well, we'll get to the action later. Uh, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, remember, who were about or who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. These two were swept away in the destruction of Sodom. And so those who Lot had procured for his daughters by his own uh, wealth or reputation in the city were now destroyed. And now Lot has no reputation and no wealth to encourage these young men or any young men to marry his daughters. It says, now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. These two daughters had not yet consummated their marriage with these betrothed. Um, but Lot here offers them to the men of the city. And so in the next statement, which sometimes causes some confusion, these daughters said there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Some will pull their hair out trying to figure out why these two daughters thought that every man on earth had been killed. But that's not at all what this means. There are plenty of men on earth, but not for them. Because they are now worthless because Lot is worthless. They're only worthy of being married because of the family status that they have. This was the culture of the day. If the father has nothing to offer, either in reputation or in wealth and a dowry, then these daughters have no chance and no hope of being married in this ruthless world system. They no longer have enough tokens to play. They're done. In fact, some cultures are still like this. Uh, in Korea, they don't... Uh, Adoption is not a popular thing because if you come without a pedigree, you are below the other people in the social standing. If you are adopted, you don't want to know that you're adopted. Your parents don't want to tell you you're adopted because you'll have a hard time getting a job. And especially you will have a hard time getting married because nobody wants to marry into a line that doesn't have reputation going back uh, generation after generation. In America... We don't understand this as well. But in other places in the world and in many other places in the world, this is still the case. This is the normal throughout all of history. 
People are worth their bloodline, not just feelings of romance. In Genesis 19:21 through 23, remember that Lot came to Zoar, and the only place that was spared in the valley was Zoar. These daughters lived in Zoar. There were men in Zoar, but they couldn't have any of them because Lot was no longer a gatekeeper of the city. Lot was no longer a homeowner. Lot no longer had many tents. Lot no longer had fields and fields full of sheep, so much that he had to move away from Abraham. Lot no longer even had this connection to the royal bloodline that he had before. He's on the other side of the Dead Sea, or what is becoming the Dead Sea. And remember, we don't even know if Abraham knows Lot survived or not. He's separated from family. He's separated from wealth. He's separated from everything. And his daughters recognize that in terms of the world, their father is worthless. But they don't want to give up their bloodline. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, after the giving of the law, we're told when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not marry outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is their fear, that Lot's bloodline, that their own bloodline be blotted out. And so they are going to take matters into their own hands. And the first daughter says, come, let us make our father drink wine. Now this should remind us of something, because this has come up before. And in fact, Moses is quite clever in the way he structures this, because we've seen this in the Tower of Babel as well. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. When they look around and see what God is doing, having just destroyed the world through a flood, brought them out and told them to scatter and to separate, to, again, cast their trust on him rather than accumulating themselves into a city to build up a name and a reputation for themselves, to build up the world system. So the same has happened with these daughters. They have been cast abroad, and they have every ability still to go and find lower men, men maybe not of reputation in the world, but of reputation before the Lord. These men who are not looking for status and clout in the world, such as Abraham for one. Now Abraham's off the market, but Abraham's about to have a son. And once Abraham has that son, who do they go looking for but a relative from his family to marry him? Not one of high reputation, but one from this family. Again, speculation, these daughters could have been candidates. 
they would not have been very old at this time. The fact that they're still in their father's house and unmarried means they're probably about 13 or 14. They're far younger than Tamar was waiting for Judah's sons to grow up. But they're trying to do it themselves, apart from God. I mean, in their minds, what has God done for them so far? He just destroyed their cities and their fiancés. Why throw our hope on this God? Let's do it ourselves, just like the Tower of Babel. You see, evil can be on a grand scale, a global scale, or it can be on a personal scale, in individual lives. And God judges adequately. They say this is their plot. Let us make uh, our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Now, notice the, the phrasing here isn't necessarily that we may preserve our father, but that we may preserve our family through our father. The father is the tool that they are using to preserve themselves. This is somewhat backwards to the way it is usually stated in scripture that somebody is being redeemed. It is for the purpose of carrying on the bloodline of that husband who died, for redeeming that bloodline. Their interest is not so much here in their father. That's why we see him becoming a passive character in this epilogue. I mean, they get him drunk, they remove his inhibitions, they make him unable to act with clarity of thought, and then they do to him what he had offered the townsmen to do to them, and they rape him. This is wicked, and this is evil, and we see that it is plotted ahead of time as well, and it's for the purpose of self-preservation. And so they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her uh, father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Now, one question is, where did they get this wine from? He's lost everything. He fled in the middle of the night. They've gone to Zoar, stayed for a while in Zoar, but he doesn't have much wealth. But it appears the only thing that he's brought with him is his daughters and wine. Again, this is a man who's lost everything and depressed, a man who does not trust the Lord, and so instead, he turns to artificial means of numbing the senses, of removing himself from the world, but not to God. This is a man who's lost everything. Now, it is possible that in these hills, there is still vineyards. In fact, the land of Jordan is pretty uh, arid, arable, able to grow things easily. Whether or not he had time to do this, we don't know, but it would be interesting that one of the things that he does is he starts to grow vineyards up there. Uh, might remind us a bit of Genesis 9.20. Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now remember the purpose of this episode in the Genesis account was to show that Noah, who had done everything perfect to this point, was not the Messiah. He was not the promised seed. 
He was not the sinless one who would rescue the world. He was not the one that they were looking for, because this one also still needs the grace of God. This is a second fall. What we are seeing with these daughters of Lot is the result of the same kind of sin. Genesis 9.23, But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Noah was a better father than Lot. Noah had two righteous sons and one who acted wickedly. Lot has two daughters, and they both act wickedly, despising the nakedness, the private parts of their father, choosing instead to use and abuse him as if he were theirs to toss away. The firstborn went in and lay with her father. Now later in the law, this is going to be explicitly uh, made explicitly illegal under the Jewish law system. It says, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Now, this verse here is a very important one in this whole system. In fact, this one starts out the condemnation of uh, having sexual relations with blood relatives. Because right here in this core, there is a very important unit. There is the two flesh becoming one unit. And it is the unit of man and woman as mother and father to the next generation. This nakedness of one's mother being accessed through the father or nakedness of the father being accessed through the mother, we see that they have become such as one so that if a son would lie with his mother, he is really lying with his father. And if a daughter would lie with her father, she's really lying with her mother. This is a contract that has been made that's not only physical but spiritual as well. And it is far removed and far different than what we've seen occur to this point with siblings marrying siblings in closer blood relative uh, relations. But even that is going to be condemned under the law. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. But remember Abraham, actually we haven't quite gotten here yet, but We've gone to this verse before. Abraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife, and besides, she actually is my sister. The daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Well, this is not condemned. In fact, God uses this union to birth the nation of Israel. And remember the age-old question, where did Cain get his wife? If there is only one couple making children at that time, then where did they get a wife for Cain? Well, one of his sisters, possibly a cousin. I think that works, but most likely a sister. Well, when the genetic code is still young, there are not as many mutations to threaten the sanctity of life. 
But as these nations are growing up and getting older, and these mutations are reduplicating, the problem in the genetic code of marrying close relatives and these mutations transferring to the next generation swiftly increases. And so this is an issue of the sanctity of life for one. Are we protecting life or are we not? But even beyond that, there is the problem of breaking divine institutions. There is the institution of marriage, a man and a wife come together, they become one flesh, but there's also the institution of family. These generations are distinct. These generations are not to cross in this sort of a way. Uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, although Eve is brought out from the rib of the man, she is still a direct creation from God. God used the dirt of the ground to create Adam. He used something that existed to form him and shape him, and then he made him something that had never been before, which was a living soul. God used, instead of dirt for Eve, the rib of Adam. But this was still material that he used to form her. And then he would breathe into her, and she would become a living soul. Both of these were made in the image of God. And everyone following these two were made in their image. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now these parents would make children in their own image, but each one would not be exactly the same. Each one would, not be the, the, would be the direct product of the mother and the father, but the code would be a little different for each one. Not only physically, but spiritually as well. This is a well-understood, uh, sometimes debated, not that often, but a well-understood uh, doctrine of Scripture, that it is not just the combination of the mother and father's flesh that creates the flesh of the child, but the combination of the mother and the father's spiritual part as well that generates the spiritual nature of the child. See, God has only ever made two bodies and two souls, and he made these capable of producing the next generation. He's done this with every living thing. In fact, this is probably one of the main thrusts of Genesis 1. Second, to God having been the creator, Next, we see how he created. We see that he created creatures that sustain themselves. And so when a child is born to a father and a mother, we recognize physical traits that carry on from that mother and father. Maybe the child has black hair because the parents have black hair, or the child has blue eyes because the parents have blue eyes, or the child has an extra long second toe because the dad has an extra long second toe. But we also recognize in our children characteristics and traits, those immaterial things that transfer immediately to a child. This is why a child almost immediately has personality, because this is not something that is societal and learned. A child is born with a spirit, 
child is born with his immaterial parts, and it is the product of his parents. But here, we've got children moving back up the bloodline, back up to their parents, and creating from that an unholy union, where half of themselves is now having sexual relations with the originator. Not just one that had come from the same originator, but the originator itself. Not only would this drastically increase the possibility of physical mutations, but what might this do to the soul? What proclivities might it be born with? If these mutations occur physically, do they not occur spiritually as well? Remember in Genesis 18, 19 as well. And this is just one of many places we could go, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, dealing with the second generation of Israel and the importance of that parent-child relationship in training up that child in the way that they should go. This parent is not a marriage option for their child because they are on a different plane in God's social structure. It says, For I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And now if this authority structure becomes confused to where the father has authority over his children, but now suddenly they become one flesh. This is just simply and clearly going against God's divine institution of family. This is not the same as marrying a sister, marrying a brother, which was condemned under the law, but not before. This, since the very day of creation, was despicable because it ruptures God's design for creation. There's a play on words here as well. When they lay with him, after having made him drunk, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The irony of this is clear. Actually, we'll go here first. Genesis 19, 4 through 5. Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and uh, do to them whatever you'd like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. The euphemism used in this passage is to know. And this does speak partly to the very nature of the sexual union between a man and a woman because it is a deep and intimate knowledge where not only the flesh but the soul would, would fellowship as well. Something that is very unique, something that is very special, and something that should be protected. And yet these daughters didn't protect it, rather they used it as a machine of creation to where they blurred their father's mind, got him out of the way so that they could just use his body to get what they would like. 
Genesis 9, 23 to 24, remember, even when Noah had drunk himself dizzy and uncovered himself in his tent, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. They got him absolutely plastered. So that when he woke up, he did not have any idea what had happened. This wasn't just drunk so his inhibitions went away. This was blackout drunk. So that they could completely have their way with him and get what they wanted. And they didn't do it just one night. They did it a second night as well. Now this is not just to condemn the daughters. But Lot did this two nights in a row. We see Noah making this mistake once. And it has its effect. And the rest of the generations as well. Because remember, Ham is cursed through his son Canaan. And this is the whole reason we're in the land of Canaan right now about to eradicate the entire land, the entire uh, population of this land. Because the curse of Canaan, because this wickedness that occurred after the flood has only reduplicated itself in the next generation and in the next generation. And while we still find God-fearing people in this land, God has said yet 400 years and the sin of the Amorites will be full. Just give it a few more generations it's going to deteriorate to absolute wickedness. And remember that God might destroy the physical person to preserve the soul. And so when God brings judgment against Sodom, he would have been perfectly just to destroy Lot and his daughters for sharing in the wickedness of Sodom because it does not remove their imputed righteousness. But God sent in messengers, and Lot followed. God brought grace before judgment, but he did not make Lot and his family flee. In fact, we see that one chose instead to disobey. She turned around, and she did not survive. That doesn't mean that she did not have the imputed righteousness of God. It does not mean that she had not trusted in him for life, for salvation. But it means that in that moment where her life was on the line, her physical life was on the line, she did not trust God and she was swept away in destruction. We see here what happens when wickedness is preserved. In fact, I had a philosophy professor in college who I really enjoyed. She was just wonderful. We did not see eye to eye on anything, but we could talk. And one issue she had with Christianity and with God was that it just wouldn't be as much fun if nobody ever did anything wrong. And so if heaven, in heaven, nobody sinned, what fun is that? Right? This is insanity, but the more I've thought on that, the more I realize you just simply can't get away from the canker of sin festering and corrupting and eating away. And it makes everything less enjoyable. It makes the reprobate mind numb to its coming judgment for a time. And then it needs more and it needs more and it needs more. Like any awful addiction, it just grows in intensity. And so we don't want a lick of sin in heaven. 
And this is why God must destroy everything sinful and bring us into glory. Give us perfected bodies. Give us perfected hearts. In fact, giving us completely a new heart. There are things about us that God will redeem, but there are also things about us which will be gone. Our physical flesh, this physical flesh will be gone and it will be replaced with eternal flesh, flesh that does not die. The material part of us which was corrupted in the fall will be gone, unredeemable and replaced with God's own life. There are things that are not redeemable. There are things that cause more corruption. And we recognize here that although these were spared, the wickedness and corruption has been preserved through them. This is not necessarily a condemnation wholesale of their children, but of their actions and the wickedness that comes from it. The wickedness of Sodom was preserved by these believers who for a moment followed but did not trust for their lives. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the young girl rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. We move lastly then to the product. What resulted from this? Well, we see that for both women, it was successful. Both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Both of them produced. But there is somewhat of a ambiguity in the way that Moses presents this story. Though he gives us evidence in the text, such as the way that it is presented, that this is similar to the fall, similar to Noah's fall, similar to the Tower of Babel, we get this sense from reading the rest of Moses' book that this is not a good situation, but he doesn't come out overtly and say it. We'll see it in the product, these men. In fact, Moses is writing the book of Genesis to the tribe of Israel, which is right now being corrupted, or at the time this was being written, corrupted by the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites, as we'll see, were the product of this union. And you'll recognize the Moabites' main god, Baal, and the Ammonites' main god, Moloch. Moloch is the one where they were told not to offer their own children in the fires of Moloch. Baal was constantly being brought into the land of Israel and was the reason that twice Israel was kicked out of the land because they continued to set up idols and altars to Baal in the high places. So it resulted in continued and reduplicated evil in the land of Israel. But here, Genesis 38, 15, going back to Judah and Tamar for just a moment. When Judah saw her, that is Tamar, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you, for you did not know that she or for he did not know that she was his daughter in law. There is a very important difference in here. She is not his daughter. She is his daughter in law. She was not the result of his direct generation. She did not come from his loins. 
She is not half of him. She is something completely different, and he owes her something. He owes her a kinsman redeemer. And he has refused it to her. He has acted wickedly, just like his sons. But Tamar, by her actions, is going to spare him. Tamar, by her actions, is going to cause Judah to live. Not only that, but the product of their generation is going to be twins. And one of them is in the seed line of the Messiah. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man uh, to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Well, in promise of payment, he had handed her these three things when he did not know who she was. And now she's able to produce them to him and show him her righteous actions. So Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Judah recognized that he had sinned. Judah recognized that he had acted wickedly and that Tamar had acted righteously. Just because the situations are similar does not mean that they are the same. This is why we have to study out every word and not just say, well, this situation somewhat matches this one. Therefore, it's okay in this case. Or it's cultural, so it was okay. No, there is right and there is wrong. But the situations have to be understood. Remember, when God heard of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, he did not send down fire from heaven. He went down to examine the details of the accusation before he brought a righteous judgment. Again, we'll look at that a little bit more next week as well. But to wrap up, let's look at these two sons that the daughters of Lot produced. First, there is Moab. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to today. Now, remember, names at this time are usually phrases or sentences or give some impression of the either the product or the glory of their children. Here we have Mo plus Ab. Mo is a little harder to understand, but Ab or Av in the Hebrew is easily and always father. So we know right off the bat that the child's name has something to do with his father. Mo is a little more difficult. There are two suggestions, one Min and the one May being combined with Ab would make Moab. Now the Min one is the most popular one, and this is a preposition meaning from. But uh, this would either be Miab or Minab. It doesn't change to a long O. The prepositions don't really work that way. So um, it would have to be through years of corruption in his name or corruption in the Hebrew language for Proto-Hebrew that they would have been speaking at the time. This is still possible. But uh, the name is not a direct match. Now, the second option is not a direct match either. But um, the word water also has is what's called a bound morpheme. Uh, alone, 
it's mayim. Mayim is water, and it's always found in the plural. Uh, and this is an unbound morpheme. That means it can stand alone. We have words like return. Turn is an unbound morpheme. It can function on its own. It can be combined with other words, and it doesn't change. But re added to that is a bound morpheme. It can't exist on its own. It has to be attached to something to mean something. We understand what this morpheme means. Re means again or turn back. And when we attach it to another word, it takes on its meaning. Here, we would have the same thing with water. Maim could become may or could become mo when attached as a bound morpheme to the word father. And it would mean from or from the water of father. This is where it gets a little crass. But this is a normal euphemism in scripture for the seminal uh, production of children. Isaiah 48.1, hear this, O house of Jacob who are named Israel and who come forth from the loins or from the water of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. So most likely what is happening here, in either case, we have her glorifying the fact that she got this child directly from her father, but there may be an emphasis on the seminal origin of this child, an emphasis on the actual action of production that occurred to create this child. She is proud of her actions. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The Moabites did become perennial enemies to Israel. There was rarely a time in Israel's history where they were not uh, at each other's throats. But there are also times where Israel is told that they might find refuge with the Moabites. The Moabites, just by nature of their existence, are not evil or wicked. They are people. They are humans, and as individuals, they may choose to trust the Lord or they may choose not to. As a nation, they may choose to trust the Lord or they may choose not to. In fact, when they first come into the land, God tells them not to do anything to this nation. Then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. God does give these children a plot of land. He had given Lot a plot of land, in fact, he had given it to Abram to dole it out as he would. And Abram gave him a portion that was then destroyed. God replaced that portion on the other side of the Jordan, and he gave it to his children. And so when the children of Israel come back in to take the land from the Canaanites, God says, not their land. He's given that to them. But these Moabites acted wickedly. Uh, Deuteronomy 2 is part of a summary section for what had happened back when they first left Egypt. He goes through a long uh, reminder to them of all that had happened, and now we're up to date in Deuteronomy 23. And in the course of events that occurred between the summary in Deuteronomy 2 and in Deuteronomy 23, we have the events of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, the Moabites see the Israelites coming, and the Moabite king plots to destroy them, but he's afraid because their numbers are so great. They're in the millions. He fears for his own nation. God had told Israel to spare his nation, but he is fearful of it. 
and he wants to protect it. And so he hires a, a seer or a, uh, a wise man to come and curse the children of Israel. And the curse doesn't work. God causes the, uh, I think it's Balak or Balaam, can't remember which one's the donkey. Uh, he causes him to bless Israel instead. He does this three times before finally uh, he gets so, it is Balak is the king. Balak gets so frustrated with Balaam's inability to curse the children of Israel that they come up with a different plot. Rather than to have God curse them, to infect them from within by the Moabite women, to send the wickedness of their own people into the land of Israel and cause Israel to become such a repugnant people to God that God will destroy them. This is a wicked and clever plan. And in fact, I think it's 24,000 are killed because of this. When finally Caleb, uh, or one of Caleb's children, comes and stabs him through the heart, and uh, not him. Anyways, read the story. <laughs> These children themselves and their nation wasn't condemned because they had come from this wicked union from Lot and his daughters but instead because of the way that they treated Israel when Israel came into the land. Deuteronomy 23.3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, not because of their mother, but because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And even worse, because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor and Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Because they did this, they will not share in the wealth and the glory of the land. Where otherwise, just as Lot may have benefited from his uncle, these nations could have benefited from Israel's wealth. But because they would not accept them coming into the land as God brought them into the land, God cut them away from this blessing. Ammon as well. The younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. This one's a little easier to identify. Ben means son, and Ami means my people. In fact, we have Am in the singular, or actually they're both singular. We have Am and then Ami, both presented in Genesis 23. Know my Lord, hear me, I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it in the presence of the sons of my people, Ami, I give it to you, bury your dead, and Abraham bowed before the people, Am, of the land. Am plus the morphine Im means my people. And so Ben Ami is the son of my people. She got what she wanted. She kept her seed line alive. And... She finds glory in this, enough to name her son after uh, the product. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to today. In fact, even the city Ammon is still named after this son. Ammon is in the region of Jordan, which used to belong to the children of Ammon. And they fall under the same uh, refusal of being part of the uh, glory of Israel, but... They themselves have a plot of land that God spares when Israel 
return to the land. When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. And so we remember that when God comes to judge, he judges justly, and that means examining the issue, examining the problem, examining the injustice done, and judging it according to his standard of righteousness. And he does not condemn these children for the wickedness of their mothers. He allows them to condemn themselves by their own wickedness, or else their own faithfulness which was offered to them. But still God had made a promise, and God keeps that promise through all the generations. And even today, this land is not possessed by Israel. You cross the Jordan into the land of Jordan, and both of these nations are subsumed into the nation of Jordan. But that land still does not belong to Israel. It belongs to the sons of Lot because God is faithful, not because Lot is faithful. Also worth noting, the mountains that he sent him to were that plot of land. Those mountains are still within the land of Moab. All right, to finish this morning, separating oneself from God's word and ways rather than from the world's word and ways results in fear and self-effort. These daughters acted out of fear that God would not preserve them. When God is not the center and foundation of one's hope, the flesh will try to solve its own problems. Lot's daughters had not been trained in truth or the fear of the Lord, and the result was fleshly scheming, resolving their shame with greater acts of evil. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you and praise you for your faithfulness towards us. We recognize that at times we act uh, unfaithfully, but we know that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. We see how you deal here with uh, one of your children who is not walking with you. And uh, we see the futility of that, that when the world is sought, the world and one's life is lost. And so we pray that we would just continue to seek you and to seek that life to come. And like Abraham, wait for that city which has its foundations in heaven and whose builder and maker is you. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.